Well, we're going to be in John chapter 20 this morning as we continue with our Founders series. Most of us know that advertisements are not to be taken too seriously uh, because a lot of times they make claims that are not true. So you may or may not know that there's a governmental agency that regulates advertisers and their claims, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. So if they find that an advertiser has said something false, they tell them, hey, cut it out. So a few of the claims in the last several years that the FTC has shut down, one of them involved uh, the makers of Rice Krispies saying that if you eat Rice Krispies, that will boost your immune system, right? Which sounds like really good news for those of us who eat uh, copious amounts of Rice Krispies treats, right? Uh, But it is not true. Uh, There is no evidence that Rice Krispies will make you healthier in any way at all. Uh, Another was the makers of frosted mini-wheats, saying that they would make your children smarter. They would boost your kids' cognitive function. And the FTC said no go. One of my favorites uh, was uh, a a company that was called Your Baby Can Read. Uh, They claimed that if you watched, or if your kids watched their DVDs, as young as nine months, your children would begin to read. By the time they were three, they could read the Harry Potter series on their own, right? Now, it turns out that's, that's not true. They don't have any evidence to back that up. Not only is it not true, but I read that and I thought, man, what a lot of pressure to put on a nine-month-old baby who can't even crawl, right? Come on, kid. You need to read Harry Potter. We need to work on this, right? They can't even talk. And yet they are trying to convince us if you get them to watch the right stuff, they can read, right? But but maybe the king of misleading advertisements, at least from my youth, involves uh, this, the sea monkeys. If you grew up reading comic books or uh, any magazines geared toward kids, no doubt you saw these advertisements for the sea monkeys. You can see in big uh, letters there, it says they are so eager to please, they can even be trained. Uh, And you see these people, they've got an entire underground kingdom going on. There's a nuclear sea monkey family, a mom and a dad and two kids. One version of this sea monkeys ad showed the mom cooking things on a tiny little sea monkey stove. I'm guessing that some of you bought these and maybe you missed the fine print at the bottom that says that these caricatures do not resemble the actual brine shrimp that they send you. Here's a picture of what they actually are. They're tiny, horrifying skeleton shrimp, right? About the size like this. They're this small, right? Thousands of kids ordered sea monkeys expecting an underground kingdom. And this is what they got. So when you and I read claims that seem too good to be true, we are naturally skeptical, right? Uh, We are designed, I think we are designed by God to constantly be trying to determine what is true and what is false. What can I trust and what should I discard, right? We want to know. The challenge is this, that because we are finite We never seem to have enough information on our own to evaluate a lot of the claims that we hear about the nature of our world and maybe even about the nature of God. 
right? We are finite. We are limited, but we want to know what is true and what is false. And what that produces in us then is this yearning to know what is true, but also we have uncertainty, don't we? We live in uncertainty and we live in doubt. The Bible makes a lot of fantastic, amazing claims about who God is and about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. We just sang about it, that we believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead. That's a huge claim. And if it's true, it changes everything about our lives. But if we're honest, most of us would say, we don't always feel 100% certain that it's true. That may may shock you to hear a pastor say that out loud. It may shock you to hear a pastor who believes in the inerrancy of the Scripture to say that on any given day, I do not feel 100% certainty about the things that I have read in the Scripture and have chosen to believe. And here's why. It's not because I think they're false. In fact, I have staked the course of my life on what the scripture says about Jesus. But like you, I'm human. And certainty is elusive. And if you're like almost every other human being who has ever lived, sometimes you struggle with doubt. Sometimes you wonder, is it true? Or is this all made up? That's the nature of faith. Faith itself involves things that we cannot see. Hebrews 11, 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, I want to be clear. I believe there is evidence for the truth of the Scripture. I believe that the best evidence when you follow it validates what the scripture says. But the reality is that we still are trusting in things that we do not see. And that inherently will produce uncertainty at times. And so what I want to talk about this morning is not so much a validation of the scripture's claims. I'm going to give some resources later on in the morning where you can head for that type of validation. But instead, what I want to talk about this morning is how do we deal with this issue of doubt? Where do we take it? And here, here's a couple of places that I want us to go this morning. First one is this. If you struggle with doubt like I do, you need to know that you are in really, really good company. Okay, we're going to look this morning at one passage from the life of Jesus involving the Apostle Thomas. And when I say Thomas, immediately the phrase that probably comes to your mind is doubting Thomas. Right? That's because we don't know a lot about Thomas from the New Testament except for what we read in John chapter 20 where he doubts the resurrection of Jesus is true. Okay, so you're in really good company. In fact, we're going to find it's not just Thomas amongst the apostles who doubted. All of them did. Because what Jesus did on its face is unbelievable, right? So you're not alone. But here's the other thing that I want to say this morning. I want us to leave the morning recognizing The doubt, when it's handled appropriately, is really, it's not something to be afraid of. 
because it's part of the natural human condition. It's part of faith. It's woven together with our faith. But instead, when we walk with God in the midst of and through doubt, doubt can actually deepen and strengthen our trust in Jesus. Let me say that again. Instead of something to be afraid of, when we walk with God through our doubt and trust him in the midst of our doubt, doubt can actually strengthen and deepen our faith. And we're going to see that in our passage this morning. And my prayer by the end of the morning is that you will say, I don't have to be afraid of doubt, but instead I can acknowledge it. I can trust God in the midst of it and walk with him through it. So that's what I want to look at this morning as we look at the Apostle Thomas. If you've got your Bible, look with me at John chapter 20. I'm going to begin in verse 24, but let me set up the uh, scene just a little bit. Uh, This is uh, coming a few days, apparently, after the resurrection of Jesus. On the Sunday night after Jesus rose from the dead, he had appeared to his disciples and he had shown them his hands and he had shown them his feet and they believed that he rose from the dead. Here's the problem. For whatever reason, Thomas wasn't there. I don't know why. Maybe he had to work on Sunday. It's hard to say, but he wasn't there. So verse 24 in chapter 20 says, but Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus was not with them when Jesus came, right? Of all the meetings to miss, Thomas missed a doozy. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So Thomas has these doubts. And again, we've heard all our lives about doubting Thomas. It's become an expression in our culture. You're a doubting Thomas, right? Advertisers might even use it if you doubt their claims. Don't be a doubting Thomas, right? But what I want to say this morning is this. Again, Thomas wasn't the only one. In fact, what we see from the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus, I think applies to us as well. Everybody has doubts, Okay, this is a famous passage, but if you were to go over to Luke chapter 24, which is uh, the other really long discussion of Jesus' resurrection and the appearances that happened after his resurrection, here's what you'll find. Luke 24, who were the first people to find the empty tomb? Well, it was a group of women, two Marys and a Joanna, right? They find the empty tomb and they run back to Peter and John and they say, hey, the tomb is empty. There was an angel there. The angel said Jesus rose from the dead and he's alive. And it says in Luke 24, 11, their words appeared to them as nonsense. And so what did Peter and John do? They ran to the tomb to do what? To see for themselves because they doubted. Later on in the same chapter, Luke 24, this one is my uh, favorite one on the subject of doubt. Jesus suddenly appears to the disciples while they are hiding in the upper room and he pops in and he goes, peace be to you, right? And they begin to freak out. And it says they thought they were seeing a ghost Right? They didn't believe it was really Jesus, so what does Jesus do? He says, hey, look at my hands, look at my feet, look at the scars. Does a ghost have flesh like I have? 
So here's Jesus. He's standing in the room. He's shown them his hands and his feet. They've been able to touch him. And you know what it says? It says they still were unbelieving because of joy. And so I love what Jesus does next. He goes, does anybody have a fish? And so they find him a piece of broiled fish, and Jesus eats it up to prove that he's alive. Right? See, it wasn't just Thomas. All of them struggled with doubt. Thomas represents, in a, in a sense, all of us, right? That's why John wrote him here into the story, not only because this really happened, but because, remember, John has to pick and choose which incidents after Jesus' resurrection and before that he's going to include. In fact, John goes, look, if I wrote everything down about what Jesus did, all the books in the world couldn't contain it. So John has selected which stories to tell. He tells this story because I think John knows that you and I are going to struggle with the same thing. Right? And we'll see it later on in the passage. Jesus is going to say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That is a little wink to you and me. You haven't seen it. Will you choose to believe? Because it happened. Everybody has doubts. Now, Thomas is an interesting guy in the sense that you do get the impression that Thomas is not uh, always the person to believe the best case scenario right off the bat. Maybe you're like that. Maybe some of you in this room, you say, actually, you know what? I'm pretty optimistic. It's pretty easy for me to believe stuff. Others of you, you may say, man, I am the kind of person that is often full of melancholy and doubt and anxiety, and I struggle to believe. Uh, The other uh, real major passage we have, and I say major kind of loosely, about Thomas. The other time we see Thomas speaking in the gospel of John is in John chapter 11. It's after uh, Jesus' friend Lazarus died. Remember, and Lazarus is the one that Jesus would eventually raise from the dead, right? But here's what's going on. The disciples are gathered with Jesus. They left Judea because people in Judea were trying to kill Jesus. They crossed the Jordan. They're kind of hiding out. They're sitting around in a group, and Jesus goes, hey, let's go back to Judea. And all of the other disciples start going, that's a bad idea, They wanted to kill you there. And Jesus goes, hey, but Lazarus is asleep. We're going to go wake him up. And they say, hey, if he's taking a nap, he'll wake up. And finally, Jesus goes, he's dead. Because they didn't understand. He says, he can't come to us, but we will go to him. And this is where Thomas speaks. And Thomas goes, let's go ahead and go with him so that we can die too. (laughs) And, And I love that. Right? Thomas is what you might call a realist. Right? Uh, some of you may have seen uh, graphics like this that break down how different people look at a glass of water. Right? An optimist, it's half full. The pessimist, it's half empty. The realist, that is a glass of water. The physicist divided it into two states of matter, gas and liquid. The surrealist, you can see him there in the middle. The relativist, it depends on where you are in the glass. Right? Half empty, half full. The utopist, all the, gla- all the water will rise to the top. The skepticist, maybe this isn't water. And then airport security, they took your whole glass, right? (laughs) This is Thomas. He's a realist. He's a realist when Lazarus dies. He says, hey, you know what? If Jesus is going to go and die, let's go die with him. And what I love about Thomas, actually, not just that he's a realist, and we'll see this later on in his life, he's intensely loyal 
Thomas has placed all his hope. I mean, he cashed in all his chips on Jesus. So he says, look, if we're going to die, let's die with Jesus. So you can see how when he starts hearing these rumors that Jesus rose from the dead, here's what I think is going on in Thomas's heart. He goes, that's too good to be true, right? I placed all my hope in him and I saw him die. And now you're telling me he's alive. I'm not going to believe it unless I see him. And in that sense, Thomas represents all of us. Thomas stands in a long tradition of doubters. Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist, Jesus' relative, was sitting in prison, imprisoned by King Herod. And John the Baptist, this fiery prophet, begins to doubt. He he sent Jesus a message, said, hey, are, are you really the guy? Are you really the Messiah or should I wait for someone else, right? You see where John is coming from. He had been tasked to proclaim the coming of the Messiah, and now he is in jail, and very shortly he would be beheaded as entertainment for one of Herod's terrible parties. So he doubts. Mark chapter 9, there's a man who comes to Jesus because his son has severe epilepsy that throws him on the ground, and the boy foams at the mouth tosses himself into the water and into the fire, and he's at his wit's end. And he says, if you can help him, please, please help him. And Jesus says, if if I can, all things are possible to the one who believes. And this man, we sang it earlier, this man, he says in his angst and anguish, he says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Thomas isn't alone, and neither are you and me. In fact, to some extent, doubt always coexists with faith. Philip Yancey wrote it this way, Doubt always coexists with faith, for in the presence of certainty, who would need faith at all? All We stand in a long tradition of doubters, and God knows. So we don't have to hide it, because everybody struggles with doubt. And here's the really good news is this, as we continue in our passage, Jesus is gracious to doubters. Jesus is gracious to doubters. I want to continue in John 20 for a moment because I want, to, I want us to see how Jesus responded to Thomas's doubt. Verse 26 says, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, I love that, he looks at Thomas, and he says, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. I love that Jesus says, okay, Thomas, I I know, I know your doubts, so I'm going to give you an opportunity to deal with them once for all. Thomas, touch my hands, touch my side. I want you to see that this is real, right? Jesus could have handled this in a number of different ways. He could have appeared and he could have said, hey, Thomas, you're cut, right? You're out of the disciple club. Peter, go put an ad on Monster. We need another one. But instead he appears, he appears again, which in and of itself is an act of grace. And he looks at this doubting disciple and he says, Thomas, Thomas, go ahead, 
you need evidence. I'm going to give it to you. One of the things that we see, and we're going to see this later in the passage as well, is that uh, as Jesus demonstrates this grace to Thomas, what, what you find is Thomas doesn't actually seem to do it, right? There's no indication in John 20 that Thomas is like, okay, right, and goes ahead and, and does it anyway. The physical presence of Jesus in the room is enough to drop him to his knees. As we move through the history of doubt in the Scripture. We consistently see Jesus responding with grace. Remember, I mentioned John the Baptist and his doubts a moment ago. How does Jesus respond to John the Baptist? He doesn't say, hey, what is wrong with you, John? You're a prophet. Pull it together. He says, no, hey, go back and tell John. He tells John's disciples, go back and tell him what you've seen. The blind see, the lame they walk, the deaf can hear, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Go tell them it's true. And then he looked at the crowd around him and he said, I'm going to tell you something. There's nobody born of women greater than John the Baptist. He says, what'd you come out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? That's not John. If John can doubt, anybody can doubt. Remember, John, John is this guy that literally in response to God's call, he had moved out into the wilderness and he wore camel's hair as clothing and he ate locusts and honey for his dinners. None of us have done that or arranged our lives around the call of God to that degree, but he still doubts. And so Jesus is gracious. Jude, verse 22. The writer of Jude tells his readers, hey, have mercy on those who doubt, because that's in the spirit of Jesus. There's only one passage in the New Testament that I'm aware of where doubt is spoken of negatively, and I want to talk about it for just a minute because I think it's important, because you're, you're going to run across it. It's in James chapter 1. James says, hey, you need to ask God for wisdom, But then it says this, but when he asks, when you ask God for wisdom, he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does, right? And so we, we read that sometimes and I think we go, see, doubt is a bad deal. Don't do it. Right, But what's important to understand about this passage is this word for doubt. I don't think doubt is quite the right translation of the original language. Right? In the original Greek language, the word has more the idea of double-mindedness, wavering. Right? The, the, the root is krino, to judge, and it's, it's got a, a prefix on it, dia, between, to judge between two things. Here's what James is saying. When you come before God and you ask him for wisdom, you can't keep your own wisdom and your own plan as a backup, right? Does that make sense? James is not saying, hey, you've got to have absolute certainty about everything God has said every time you pray or God won't answer. Instead, he's saying this, the spirit in which you approach God to ask for wisdom, to ask for help, has to be a spirit that may say, hey, look, I don't know everything. I don't understand everything, but God, I am going to cast myself on your wisdom and leave my backup plans behind. Because he says the person who is double-minded, who wants to serve 
serve his own way and God's way at the same time. He's going to roll with every wave and he won't receive wisdom from the Lord because he won't listen. Here's the way that I would describe this. The difference between what James is saying here and what we see throughout the rest of the scripture when it talks about doubt is this. For those of you that are married, I'm going to guess that at some point prior to your wedding, maybe when you were first engaged, maybe men before you proposed, maybe it was on the wedding day. At some point in there, you struggled with uncertainty, right? At some point in there, you had at least a fleeting thought, I wonder if this is the right decision, right? I've, I've, officiated a lot of weddings. And, and I'm just going to say, typically what I will see is that, that often the bride will work through those doubts uh, shortly after the engagement or maybe while they're dating leading up to the wedding. And then on the wedding day, she's all in, but she's focused on the details of the wedding. I've seen many grooms though hit that day and all of a sudden the uncertainty hits them when we are standing in the wings about to walk on the stage. And all of a sudden they go, this is a big thing that's about to happen, right? That's doubt. That's uncertainty. That's the kind of uncertainty we all struggle with. Why is it? Because you're entering a huge commitment and you don't know what's going to happen in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. You don't know. You don't know what this person will be like. You have no idea how they might change. You have no idea how you might change. That's uncertainty. What James talks about, though, is this. Let's say that you get to that point and you say, just in case I have a backup spouse lined up. Right now, some of you are offended I even said that. And that's why I said it. Because that's how offensive James says this attitude is. To say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have half of my plans here with God, but I'm going to have a a backup set of gods just in case. Maybe my money, maybe my own wisdom, maybe my own schedule, whatever it is. Right? See, James is not talking about the uncertainty we all struggle with. He's talking about a mind that is divided. And what we see in the scripture consistently is Jesus is gracious to those of us who doubt, who have uncertainty, because he knows that we all struggle with it. So Jesus is gracious to doubters. And then what we see as we press forward is Jesus is gracious and helps us move through it because our doubts can actually strengthen our faith. Notice how Thomas responds here in verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. What's remarkable here is this is the most powerful confession in the book of John about who Jesus is, the most powerful confession that comes from one of his disciples, right? As you read through the Gospels, Jesus is called the the Messiah. He's called the Son of God. Here's the first time we have an apostle who essentially says, you are God in the flesh. All of a sudden, Thomas realizes who this is. His doubt in an instant turns into a depth of faith that actually would carry Thomas for the rest of his life. History tells us that after Jesus' ascension into heaven, Thomas traveled to India 
where he preached the gospel for the rest of his life until he was eventually martyred for his faith. There are still churches today in the country of India that are named after Thomas, many of which we know go back at least to the second century. He gave his life for the good news of Jesus. And so Thomas says, my Lord and my God, because walking through doubt and bringing it to Jesus strengthened his faith. Some of the greatest men and women in history struggled deeply with doubt. Most of you will be familiar with the name Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 1500s. And Martin Luther is uh, probably best known for helping to restore to the church the gospel of grace. That is, we are saved by faith alone, through the grace of God alone. Right? And he stood before the authorities of the Catholic church with boldness, risking his life, right? And he said, I I am bound by my conscience and by the scripture. If you can show me that I'm wrong through the word of God, okay, then I will repent of what I'm saying. But otherwise, I'm bound by the scripture and by the word of God. And of course, history uh, would tell us that he says, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. What you may not know is that Martin Luther struggled deeply with doubt and with depression. One of his biographers, Roland Bainton, said the content of his depressions was always the same, what Luther called his anfektugen, the loss of faith that God is good and that he is good to me. So what did Luther do? Well, for him, he went to the word of God. He went to the word of God over and over and over again. For him, he said, the word of God passed down from generation to generation. I'm going to dive into it and trust it. In the, in the darkest year of his doubt and depression, around 1528 or 29, he wrote these words that you are probably familiar with. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. In the face of the lies of the enemy, in the face of doubt, Luther says, I'm gonna go to the word of God. Who is my God? That's the power of dealing with doubt through the scripture. On the other hand, there's there's danger and corrosion when we try to hide. When we try to pretend that there is no doubt. When there is. Many years ago, uh, when Shannon and I were first married, I had this little Toyota that I had purchased for not very much money, and uh, over the course of time, the car uh, began to leak oil from the engine. And so I would um, simply carry several quarts of oil in the trunk, 
and I would just pour oil into it uh, every couple of days because I was afraid of what was going to be the bill if I actually took it to the shop, right? I was worried if I took it in, they were going to tell me uh, what was actually the reality, which is the engine was failing, right? Over time, the car began to shake like a horse and buggy whenever I would drive down the road, right? And so I would get out and I would pour more and more oil in the thing. I mean, I spent probably $30, $40 a week on oil for this vehicle instead of taking it into the shop. Finally, one day we were on a longer trip. And of course, the end of this story was inevitable. The car through a rod. The engine was destroyed. It cost me thousands of dollars because I tried to save a few hundred in repair costs. And that's what can happen with doubt. That it can start as a little problem. We try to shove it down. We try to deal with it through our own wisdom. We try to ignore it. And it begins to eat into us. And it produces a corrosion that can destroy our faith. But as we look at the Scripture, what we see is that the Scripture tells us we can bring it to Jesus. Last words here in John chapter 20, verse 29. Jesus says to Thomas, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And again, that's, that's to you and me. We haven't seen, and yet Jesus calls us to believe. So what do we do? What do we do about our doubts? Let me offer a few practical suggestions as we close. First one is this, acknowledge them. Acknowledge them. God knows that they are there. He's not caught off guard. He's not thinking, how could you ever doubt any of this? He made us. He knows we are finite. He knows that we struggle, and he knows the nature of faith. So acknowledge them. Secondly, we bring them to God in prayer. God knows our doubts, so pray about them. Just like this man in Mark 9, God, I believe, I believe I've staked my life on Jesus Christ but help my unbelief. So we spend time asking God to strengthen our faith, to teach us to endure, to help us to understand what is right. There's a reason that at the beginning of each sermon, we pray the things that we pray. We pray for our minds and we pray for our hearts and we pray for our bodies because although we are spiritual beings, we are also physical and mental and emotional Beings And all of those things contribute to lead us toward faith, yes, but also toward doubt. And so we ask God to transform our minds and provide us with conviction. And to transform our hearts so we'll obey and listen to his word. And then to move in our bodies that we will obey. And so we pray about our doubts. Thirdly, deal with the root of your doubts. Very quickly, let me, let me suggest this. I think most doubts spring from one of two sources, okay? I think there are two primary types of doubt. First, there is the intellectual type of doubt. Things like, does God exist at all? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Can the Bible be trusted? Those types of things that, that spring from our, our minds. And the really good news is there are some great resources out there 
to address these types of questions. There's a ton of them. Let me just recommend two or three that have been helpful to me over the years. One is the books by Lee Strobel, both The Case for Christ, which deals with issues related to who Jesus was and the evidence for the resurrection, and then The Case for Faith, which broadens it out a little bit and deals with things like the Bible and how the world was created and those types of things. Uh, For the subject of whether God exists, one book that I read a few years ago that was very powerful to me by Timothy Morgan, it's called Thank God for Atheists, story of a man who uh, drifted away from his faith in Jesus and then began to study the works of prominent modern atheists and found that they actually led him back to God. It's a wonderful book. And there are many others, but that's just a couple of them. So dig into those intellectual doubts. And then the second type is experiential. This is like the John the Baptist type of doubt. If God is good, why am I hurting? Does God really love me? Just like Martin Luther asked, is God good and is he good to me? And where do we go? Well, I think like Luther, we go to the word of God and we see how God has led and cared for his people, how he has kept his promises over all of the millennia. But I think also we can go to one another for prayer, for support, for encouragement. Because I know for me that there's a, a few men in my life, along with my wife, who pray, pray, pray in those moments in my own life of doubt, anxiety, and discouragement. And I believe those prayers of our fellow Christians, they, they bear us up in the midst of doubt, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial. It might not solve the problem at the root of our doubt, but it strengthens us as we walk through. And so we deal with the root of our doubts, and then, and then lastly, simply endure, simply endure. We just wake up each morning and we say, I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus. Just as Hebrews 12 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. All of us face the danger of growing weary and losing heart. And so we wake up each morning, day after day, week after week, year after year, and we say, all, I, all I'm going to do today is fix my eyes on Jesus. If I'm honest, there have been moments throughout my life, throughout my walk with Jesus, where, where a large percentage of my prayer moments in the morning and throughout the day have just consisted of, Jesus, please help me get through. And it may be you begin, and that's really all you can say. And yet you wake up the next morning and you say, Jesus, help me. And he begins to show you those areas of your life that need transformation, and he begins to remind you of his promises in his word and of the people surrounding you and the power of his spirit within you. So you go to bed tonight and you wake up again. And you go to bed the next night and you wake up again. And each day, 
You don't have to think about 50 years from now. You just think about today, I will fix my eyes on Jesus. To endure in the face of doubt. Very quickly before I close, here's all I would say is this. If you uh, are in the room this morning and you find yourself at a particularly difficult season of doubt or discouragement, we would like to hear from you. You can, you can contact me. My, my email, I think, is either in our bulletin or on the website, but it's just mattmorton at grace-bible.org. You can contact Dusty. You can contact Kenny, Chris, anybody who is on staff, any of our elders. We would like to hear from you, to pray for you. All right? We're not going to put it on a public prayer request list, or you know, I'm not going to bring it up here next week and tell everybody, but we would like to pray for you so that we can be a part of strengthening you for that journey, so that doubt can become something God uses to strengthen our walk with him and not something to fear and not something that corrodes our faith. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word. And Father, we admit that so many things keep us from from trusting you fully a lot of times. And we acknowledge that we're finite, and so absolute certainty, it's, it's out of our grasp. But faith and trust in you, Lord, we know that you've given us all that we need to believe and know the truth. Father, teach us to walk with you day after day, trusting that your word is true and that your promises are true. I pray specifically for those in this room this morning who feel at the end of their rope. I pray you'd bear them up through the power of your spirit to walk for another day. We thank you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.